0: Welcome to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I am joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Siddons. Hey, Casey.
1: Hey, welcome back.
0: Welcome back to you and Mr. Peter Crable.
1: Hey, great to see you.
0: We are Ed's Not Dead. Welcome back, folks. Uh, We have a great show for you today. As always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Ed's Not Dead Media, a podcast media company that curates high-quality audio stories across a variety of genres you can always find us on Twitter at Ed's Not Dead PC and check out the website edsnotdead.com. Hey boys, how are you? It's good to see you guys.
1: Yeah, yeah, nice to nice to be back and on the saddle doing the show.
0: Good to be back. It's, it's, been, it's been a little bit. We have a great show for our listeners. We are incredibly honored to have Dean of the School of Education at Howard University, Dr. Leslie Fenwick, who we were pushing just few months back to be the secretary of education and um sleepy joe didn't listen to us mr <laughs> <Sins>. <laughs> he chose he chose, someone, he
1: chose someone else well that's I mean, why she came on the show she heard our endorsement and was like yeah she was all powerful about it. national I organization to, i need to
2: get on this uh,
0: podcast.
1: Yeah, gotta get I, on yeah
0: so um i'm i'm good job casey we're very psyched to have dr fenwick on the show she's going to be great guest we were we were thrilled when we read her background um yeah and then she's a very gracious person she was very uh closely emailing me and
2: um it was just good to talk with her even you got a good feel just a good vibe
0: we might not have been able to get her on the show if she had gotten the the big gig
2: oh definitely not with secret service protection and everything no no no
0: <laughs> all right, what are you what are you boys up to? What have you been up to, Mr. Graves? How are you over there?
1: Doing doing great, you know. Just uh, weather, springtime weather is finally starting to turn, so trying to spend every every second outside uh, that I can.
0: You didn't have your you weren't afflicted by your seasonal uh, s- seasonal uh, <laughs> doldrums
1: this year, were you? Uh, no, I also didn't get sick at all this winter, which was incredible. I haven't I haven't had a cold in a year. Not not a not a sniffle yeah not even a, not even a runny nose it was incredible that's yeah, the, called the, not, the, that's the, called not being in school yes, well it's called that's correct it's called wearing a mask too and that's not, true not too. being around
2: people right it yeah. also
1: like really speaks volumes about your personal hygiene and how poor it probably is oh absolutely like every three weeks yeah. you're getting the sniffles that you maybe not washing your hands quite enough i think flu yeah.
2: cases across the world are down like to literally nothing yeah to essentially none yeah
1: mr siddons how about you how are
0: things how's how's the baby girl
2: Oh great! We're doing great. Uh, big 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 uh, mulch delivery next week. Which <laughs> I was gonna, I'm very I knew, excited I knew, about. I
0: knew when I asked it, we were headed towards home improvement. <laughs> Bob Vila over here. Uh, big mulch. How how many yards? Take a guess. Okay, um, I'm gonna say four yards of mulch. Ooh, seven. Ooh, okay. I was, I was over half last year.
2: uh, Every year I order not enough, and and I decided I'm going big.
0: Are you going? Are you going shredded hardwood? Are you going pine (laughs) chips? No, no, no. dyed, dyed brown, dyed brown. Okay, that is it's shredded. That's lame. The dyed mulch is lame. (laughs) What do you mean? It's fine. Uh, I'm just kidding. No, that's nice. That'll be, that'll be good. Don't put it on too thick around those no, trunks, no. trunks
2: of your trees. You got to make a little tire. You know what I mean? A little tire, a little You're tire, like... a little tire.
0: <laughs> All right. Well um, it's good to be back. It's that time of the show where Casey does show feedback and I'm looking at the show notes and it's sparse. I'm going to
2: share one. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the practice of only sharing one piece of feedback uh, from listeners. And this is from actually our previous guest, from last show, Dan Reed, who uh, gave us, we we love when we get some quote tweets and retweets, and uh, he said this is a great podcast hosted by three educators, and I had a blast talking with them. And uh, he he also posted
1: on his Facebook page too, which we appreciate. Dan, I got some, I got some feedback. I for, I totally forgot about this. I'm sorry, Dan
0: from just up the pike. That's a pretty yeah. sweet tweet. Yeah. Since I'm never on Twitter, I didn't see that, Mr. Sids. Did. Did we get any love on that tweet? Oh, yeah, we got some We got some good
2: retweets on it. But uh, yeah. feedback on the episode was, uh, was I think, very positive from folks that uh, reached out to me. And uh, I think they appreciate hearing about the discussions on housing policy and how it impacts education policy because, as we've discussed before, m- people don't think about it being one uh, impacting the other.
1: Yeah, and I got some feedback. Um, somebody I've known for geez, man, a long time. Um, a buddy of mine, Hassani, uh, finally got around to listening. Get-
0: <laughs> <laughs> four, four years in. Oh, it took
1: him four years. Better
2: late than never. Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, he said he especially liked this episode um, with Dan Reed and um, in, in talking about his own personal experiences growing up in segregated neighborhoods and his family growing up in segregated neighborhoods um, really for the last hundred years and um, in, in, like the various fights, zoning, uh, mm-hmm. things like that that have gone on. So. Um, it was definitely good to hear from him, and I, I do think, Casey, to your point, a lot of people, it struck a chord with them just to, to think about local issues and how it affects schools, and, and you know, we kind of mm-hmm. laughed about zoning, but, you know, it's, it's a thing, and boundaries are, are, are very important and yeah. are, are, are heavily invested in them. Yep. Yeah,
0: we're going we're gonna to ask Dr. Fenwick about that. Yes, um, before we get to the break and Dr. Fenwick, I wanted to ask you about a recent op-ed in the Los Angeles Times titled The Big Post-Pandemic Educational Mess and What It Will Take to Solve It by Morgan Polikoff. Um So the writer, Casey, you sent this to us, I yes. think, right? The, the, the writer essentially discusses how the, the sense of learning loss and the impact on kids has vacillated over the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at one point, it was it's, it's awful, and kids have lost so much, particularly students of color or um, students who live in poverty, and then the pendulum swings the other way and you read pieces about how it's maybe not so bad. Um, and that it's afforded kids other opportunities both with their families and at home and in their communities to have other experiences. I'm pretty accurate, right? There's been this back and forth swing over the last year. Um, While this most recent piece is back towards the extreme of that, um, that it's had a a tremendously onerous impact. For example, now nearly 40% of third graders in majority black schools are two or more grade levels um, below in reading Mm -hmm. Um, and that a recent national survey of parents of teenagers found that 46% have noticed a new or worsening mental health condition in their children and even more for teen girls. So there's some pretty stark statistics here in this op-ed that point to the crisis um, and what needs to happen then in reopening? I I texted you all and said that I was somewhat underwhelmed by um, the writer's recommendations for reopening and what needs to happen over the next year or two.
2: Well, they're pretty they're pretty light in details. Yeah, they're pretty Even light. The, so
0: yeah. So the first the first thing that the writer says is that the federal government needs to have a more robust role in directing states and municipalities towards what works mm-hmm. uh, in, in making up for learning loss. And then, um, and then goes into three points. The first uh, Casey, I know you're going to love this. And this is why <laughs> I was surprised that you even sent the article ongoing measurement. I think we know what that means, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, second interventions.
2: But, but, and, but with the first one that the ongoing measurements are not just standardized testing. It is, it's measurement of student social emotional health and well-being as well.
0: Okay. All right. So thank you for adding that. And then last interventions need to be targeted to those who need them most. I, I literally felt like I was a I was back in the No Child Left Behind era when I read these three. Um, this was this seems to me just to be a playbook that's kind of warmed over and rehashed. I want your opinion on on this approach to the next year or two, especially you, Casey, with what you've learned in your interviews on Pandemic Pass.
2: Well, I I think, you know, with the, that, the, just to talk about the ongoing measurement, you know, I, I have such problems with standardized testing, as you know, but.
0: But it, but it will be standardized testing. You know, It will be standardized
2: testing. And, and just, there needs to be, I've come around to the fact that they're just, we need to figure out where our kids are when we come, whenever we are fully back or whenever the, the time seems necessary, we need to get a sense of where our students are baseline data. So we know where to move, how and where to move forward. Um, I'm interested to see what that social and emotional health and well being assessment would look like. Maybe it's not a traditional test, but maybe it's, it's the one-on-one conferences that we have with uh, 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 more counselors Hired in school systems or social service workers or um, social workers or things like that, that we are going to hire or have more money to hire in schools to actually have these kind of conversations to figure out where our students are, because the mental health and well-being of our kids is is not in a good place at, at present.
1: Yeah, and Mr. I think Gra- Mr. Graves? There, there was um, a couple points that um, stuck out to me. So one sentence in particular, it said our educational systems are poorly designed from the standpoint of identifying what works and then providing it equitably to students and families. So I, I am in agreement with that because I, I feel that way sometimes where I don't certainly don't have all the research and the research that I do find to be honest, is mostly as a result of this show <laughs> that I have to like seek out and find that is that has made me, and so I, when I think about educators across the country, I know that, that um experience is extremely valuable. But there is also research that clearly demonstrates specific things that are more or less useful. Um, and so then it, uh, there is also a sentence in here that about local control, and but it says although generally we do want local control, um, you know that state and national leaders must step in to provide clear and specific guidance on the best ways to spend the American rescue plan dollars to address the negative impact. So I think, and I, I texted this when we were kind of talking about doing it. And I think it's a slippery slope, right? Because you get into course of accountability, you get into race to the top, you get into all the eggs in one basket. If you think about race to the top of teacher accountability, measures, progress, et cetera. And I think what I would like to see is like a menu of best practices mm. that state in, local jurisdictions could choose from we know that this works we know that this works we know that this works a variety of things and then they could choose which one they wanted to implement now i think all too often it's 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 like a black and white issue where it's the federal government is telling you exactly what to do and there's all this like resentment from that or they're just giving vast sums of money and then you know everybody's just making up what to do but maybe they're not really qualified or maybe they're not really in a position to to come up with whole new ways of thinking when like if I, if you just give me 10 options, I can pick which one is best. So, I mean, I think as far as the article goes, it's pretty light on detail, but I think the the thing that I did take away from it is I would like to see a, at least a little bit of guidance from the federal government about, yeah, you're about to get a lot of money. Here are things that we know that work, pick, pick which one works best for for your local school district.
2: I also, I'm also curious as to what the federal government could do. I mentioned it in our thread about, Something on modeling like the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, where you're sending people out to um, do the work that needs to be done to to improve our nation. And I think it's something that can be done if we if we hire recent graduates from high school and college to um, train them on on like mentorship and send them out into schools across the nation. Um, where they're working with kids after hours. So the kids are there for an hour, hour and a half after school or or whatever, before school, whatever it may be, whatever the school district wants to be flexible in. But I think that one-on-one or at least small group um, uh, interaction is going to be very helpful given the fact that our our students have been so isolated for the past year.
0: How about incentivizing a whole new generation of teachers? See, that's where... Yes. I, I mean, that's where I... I, I I I it's I quibble with this piece because with with the, the pandemic provided a certain margin to in my mind to address what wasn't working pre-pandemic. Yeah. What we can acknowledge, right, that the reason kids are disproportionately impacted by the pandemic is because they were already impacted by things that we don't do well pre pandemic. Mm-hmm. So why aren't we why aren't we taking a bigger, grander approach to changing schools? Yeah, um, with an opportunity that you get once a century. Yeah, um, to to rethink what we what we do. Like you just mentioned, something something bold. Um, I mean, these are these what what I just read in that piece could have come out of a school improvement plan. Right, you're going to measure, you're going to intervene, and you're going to do it for a focus group of kids. Right, I I, so I just it just doesn't move the needle for me.
1: And you know, Leslie Fenwick, um, coming up next, she's going to talk about revolutionizing the school system. And one of the things that, that I fear most is that when we do fully go back to school and you know, business as usual, quote unquote. Is that it? Literally, looks exactly the same as before we left. Exactly.
2: That is the. That is. And that the, is scary.
1: An insane thought, but yeah. I kind of feel like that's where we're headed. Yeah. Okay. Yep.
0: Yep. All right. All right. Um, check out this piece. It is by. Put it in the show notes. You put it in the show notes. It's by Morgan Polikoff, um, who is uh, an associate professor of education at USC. Is the author of Beyond Standards the fragmentation of education governance and the promise of curriculum reform. Mr. Crable, it is not about curriculum. I just want you to know that.
1: (laughs) Okay. The kids are all
0: right. We keep coming back to that every show. Mr. Crable's famous blog. Oh my God. What was it titled? It's not the curriculum dummy or. Curriculum is not Uh, the answer. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. It wasn't that mean. Um, all right. Uh, don't go anywhere. Uh, we are incredibly excited to have Dr. Leslie Fenwick, the Dean of the School of Education at Howard University, when we come back. Fellas, we are incredibly excited uh, and gratified to have Dr. Leslie Fenwick on the show. Hi, Dr. Fenwick. How are you? It's great to have you on Ed's Not Dead. Welcome. Welcome.
3: Uh, greetings. Glad to be here. Please call right. me Leslie. All right, Leslie,
0: let's get started. Uh, we are going to jump into the pandemic question. Uh, Casey Siddons actually has another podcast podcast called The Pandemic Pass, and he covers a lot of, of things related to reopenings and learning loss. So let's start with a question on, on really the pressing issue of our day over the last year. Reopenings and learning loss. What do you think schools need to do to repair the damage from the last year for so many kids, especially our students of color in our public schools in the United States?
3: Well, first, um, I I think I would respond to that in three ways. Um, First, it's a shame that we're here. You know, in the early 1900s, the US um, invested in the biological sciences. We saw that investment in K-12 schools and in higher ed. And so what that meant for our country is that we have the world's best virologist, the world's best epidemiologist, the world's best immunologist, and the world's best public health service. And so had our public health as a nation not been politicized, the nation's children and youth and adolescents and youth uh, and adults we'd not be in this situation. Um, you know, this is the first time in the history of our country that we've closed all of, nearly all of our schools, both K-12 and higher ed. So the first thing I would say is it's, it is a tragedy and a travesty, and we recognize this, that we're in this place. The second thing I would say is, that, you know, I began my career as a fourth grade teacher and later was a middle school teacher. Um, I've taught students literally from kindergarten through the doctoral level. And one of the essential requirements of attending school, having school open, is that teachers and students feel safe. They feel safe in the environment, whether that safety has to do with the school culture, the school climate, um, physical safety from harm. And that leads me to my third point. So we have to have a level of a feeling of safety in schools. And and then thirdly, right now we don't. We don't have a uniform sense among um, teachers, administrators, and other school personnel and children and parents that they'll be safe um, when they come to school. I do think that the Biden administration's um, goal to follow public health to follow science, to ensure that schools and communities have resources um, in the schools and to get those resources allocated appropriately so that um, parents and students and teachers and administrators and other school personnel can feel safe is very, very important. Um, So it's a safety issue. It's a safety and security issue. And much of that is about our mental disposition to it all. Of course, we also know that um, the pandemic has kind of ripped away this thin veneer um, that really for those of us and each of us on this call um, know this to be true because we're educators. It was a, a thin veneer hiding what we knew, which is that there are massive inequities in terms of how we fund schools yeah. and the access uh, to resources that children get that are differentiated along lines of race, gender, um, culture and, and wealth. And so now we see it and, um, we have a responsibility to address this in some, 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 some new ways.
1: So do you want to talk about some of the new ways? I'd love to hear I mean, your perspective <laughs> on that. Yeah, I'd like to yeah. talk about yeah. some of
3: those new ways. Um, You know, in my role as dean in residence at the American Association um, for Colleges of Teacher Education, AACTE, um, I had the opportunity to interview 13 um, leaders um, in higher education um, in uh, the not in the foundation world and also a group of executive directors and not for non nonprofits that are devoted to equity that have had a history of uh, and, you know uh, addressing equity issues and so these were presidents and uh, CEOs and executive directors of Carnegie Foundation, Kellogg Foundation, Edutopia. Some of these were board members, um, uh, deans of schools and colleges of education from Clark Atlanta University and HBCU to. Florida International University, which prepares the largest number of Latinx teachers for the country, to the Dean of uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, to um, executive directors at the NAACP um, Excellency in Education. I'm giving you an ex- example of some of the folks we talked to, I talked to. And I asked them do we need a revolution? to rectify what's wrong in public education. And to a T, these individuals, these leaders um, said yes. I thought that they would hesitate at that word revolution. Um, In other words, you're not expecting a president of a foundation or board member to say, yes, revolution. Maybe, you know, academics, maybe those of us in the trenches of education would say, yes, we need a revolution. But there was broad, wide, and uniform um, realization by these individuals who are largely outside of education but attached to our enterprise that unless we change some of the foundational assumptions that are guiding what we do, we're not gonna get something new. So, what does that mean? We need to reanalyze how we're funding K 12 education and why we have. Um, in higher ed, uh, students still paying for tuition primarily um, from student loans. We need to reanalyze um, how we deliver our curriculum—a curriculum that is primarily uh, white in authorship, content, and imagery. We need to reanalyze and probably and recommit to a race equity agenda that centers um, Black and Latinx and other um, students of color and people of color. We need to ditch uh, this deficit model um, and embrace an asset model um, around research and commentary about black uh, communities and Latinx communities, other communities of color and those that have been marginalized. So there's something new right now that will move us forward because I don't think we're returning to our pre-COVID realities. In order to move us forward, it's a time of reanalyzing these foundational assumptions. Who are we? What are we trying to do? And where are we trying to go? And we've got to do this because, you know, when I was in graduate school, I started paying attention to this when I was in my PhD program. Uh, The demographers were saying by 2075, America, the 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 majority of American citizens would be people of color. Before I could get out of graduate school, and it didn't take me ten years, you know, it took me <laughs> for, they had dropped it to twenty fifty five. Yeah. I'm talking about in the '90s, they had dropped the prediction to twenty fifty five. And then when I began my career, you know, in, in the early uh, '90s as well as a, a faculty member, a junior faculty member. Um, it was 2045, mm. and I say, and now the prediction is 2024, and I really say it's 2020, we're, we're here, I mean, we're, we're past here, um, and we see this, right? So each of us has been in schools as teachers and administrators. So, you know, in 2015, um, for the first time in the history of public schools, the majority of our student population nationwide Um, became students of color. That same year, the majority of the public school population um, students, the majority of the student population was from families that were experiencing poverty, okay? So the majority of public school students are students of color, and they're also students from families um, experiencing poverty. We're seeing, we knew that in K-12, A lot of times we put up these um, artificial walls between K-12 and higher ed and talk about the two contexts, like they don't impact one another. But now for the first time um, in 2017-18 academic year, um, the majority of students who are in public colleges and universities, which are about half the nation's uh, colleges and universities, are non-white. So we're seeing that mirroring, that, sh- that demographic shift. And in the 2018-19 academic year, in 12 states, Puerto Rico and D.C., the majority of college students attending public institutions were non-white students. So th- this demographic shift that we're experiencing, it's going to make us re-examine some of our foundational assumptions about who gets educated, who we're going to invest in, who we care about making it into a productive um, civic uh, life.
2: One of of the things that that I've been thinking about a lot is, and where I work, we have a teacher academy and and in my high school, it's one of the most diverse high schools in the county. And I'm glad to have this teacher academy because it needs to be in our school because we we need to create a pipeline for teachers who are who look like the students that we serve. Um, you've written extensively about the need to diversify the teaching workforce. We're currently at like 80% white teachers. Um, and, and what do you what do you feel like in your research and your work? What are the biggest barriers facing educators of color, and and how can we build, what are the things that we need to do system-wide, federally, statewide, to have a teaching force that more accurately reflects the diversity of our country?
3: I think this is such an important question. Again, given the, the, uh, you know, the demographic profile of K-12 students and higher education students and the emerging demographic, Profile. We know, just as you said, Casey, there's this huge demographic mismatch between um, the school personnel, principals, and teachers who serve students. So let's pretend for a minute we're going to go across the country and go inside um, inner city, go inside urban centers into inner cities. Um, 73% of teachers in inner city schools are white. If yeah. you come out of the inner city but stay in an urban uh, center, about ninety one percent of teachers in urban um, schools are white. And we can do that same exercise with principal leadership and the and the and the the uh, the uh, statistics are comparable. The majority the about sixty two percent of um, inner city principals are white. Mm-hmm. So um, one one of the things we know, from the research is that academic and social benefits accrue to African-American and Latinx students when they're in highly diverse staffed schools. They're less likely to be misplaced in special education, more likely to be tested for gifted education, more likely to graduate high school in four years and less likely to be expelled. Um, We now have almost, you know, 40, 50 years of research longitudinal Studies that show that um, African-American teachers elicit in certain grades um, higher performance on mathematics and uh, English achievement on standardized tests, uh, college matriculation rates, um, uh, high school graduation. So we have the data, the quantitative data and the qualitative data to say that diversely staffing our schools helps students. Um, now, all
2: students too. All students. Yeah, Robbie's all talked students. about it where it's like, it not, not only benefits our students of color, but our white students as well.
3: Absolutely. Um, for, for a whole host of reasons. One, it teaches all students that knowledge generation, creativity, intellectual ability does not reside in one group of people. It's the work of all groups of people. So that modeling of intellectual authority um, being in 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 diverse people is so important to all students. Um, now, how do we get? To, how did we get here? And then, how do we get to the place where all of our students are seeing these diverse models of intellectual authority? Um, in order to answer the question about how we got here, we have to go back to the Brown decision. So, um, prior to Brown, Thurgood Marshall, who we all know, um, was one of the crafters. Uh, the creators of this new jurisprudential theory that won Brown. Um, Marshall knew, as did the NAACP, that with Brown, the likelihood of um, Black teachers and principals losing their jobs was high. Remember, Brown did not say close all the Black schools. Brown said separate and equal had no place in public education in the United States of America. So what happened on the tail end of the decision the only jurisdiction that immediately desegregated was Washington, D.C. And some say that's why we have Northern Virginia, but I won't get into that kind of (laughs) whole history. But Washington, D.C. schools immediately desegregated, the only jurisdiction in the country. For at least um, 25 years, 30 years, we had resistance to the Brown Decree in the 17 dual system states, which meant that school officials, state officials, from governors to mayors, to school boards, to superintendents were fighting um, the true integration of students and um, teachers and principals. So black schools were closed in most jurisdictions and black principals and teachers were summarily fired, dismissed and demoted. And it's that history.
2: Something like 40,000?
3: It was really more than that. I've written a book um, that should I'll be able to more formally announce, um, I think, this summer. Um, and the title of the book is Jim Crow's Pink Slip, Public Policy and the Decimation of Black um, Principal and Teacher Leadership in American Education. I know Ooh. that's a mouthful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> look, look, look how, I look how, look, look how we'll excited just, Casey's we'll got. We'll just say Jim Crow's Pink Slip right now. But I trace that history because the research literature has been hesitant to link that history that history that was a purposeful constriction of the Black Educator Pipeline. I talk about the strategies used, the numbers which have been underestimated in the literature, um, and how that explicitly links to now. So this history, post-Brown in the 17 dual system states, we've not recovered from. You know, prior to Brown, about in the dual system states, 35 to 50% of, of educators were We're black. We're African American. There's no state today that approaches that percentage um, in terms of representation in the principalship or the teaching force. So, if we look nationally, what do we have about uh, Robert? About 14,000 superintendents. Less than uh, three percent are African American. That's great. If we look at the nation's uh, 93,000 or so principals, about 11% are African-American. And of course, you already know the statistics on teachers, about seven or 8% are African-Americans. And this, this has a, an explicit history. I do think we can move forward from this history because there's been a consistent concern. The majority of Americans, um, when polled, uh, say they believe in integration, they say they believe in diversity. Um, we have strong engines for the production of black teachers, um, HBCUs, you know, produce about 50% of the nation's black teachers, even though HBCUs are only 3% of the nation's colleges and universities. So there are these strong engines. Two HSIs, two Hispanic serving institutions, produce 90% of the nation's Latinx teachers. So we need our more mainstream, uh, traditionally white institutions to embrace this diversity goal and uh, to look at the barriers to um, recruiting. Uh, Education is still a top 10 major at HBCUs. There's an interest in the field to become an educator. Many HBCUs, as you know, are serving first-generation students, and what's one of the quickest ways to join the middle class, become a teacher. It's a salaried position that typically has been a stable job and well regarded in uh, in the black community and in some other communities of color. So we have a lot of work to do there. And I think that um, some of that work is is uh, dismantling barriers like um, uh, licensure exams, passing licensure exams um, to enter a uh, teacher education. I know when I came through the University of Virginia, we didn't have Praxis One or any of these other licensure exams that were entrances into the profession because you're a college student. You've taken the SAT, the ACT, you have a, a GPA, you've been accepted to college. So you were accepted into the School of Education. You got the treatment of teacher education. Now you got to pass the, the licensure exam in order to graduate out of a teacher education program, that's a reasonable expectation. But these entrance licensure exams, all they did was further constrict and almost they were the ruination of a new generation of black students. I saw um, the pipeline of black students who were interested in becoming teachers just dry up. I literally saw it um, based on these arbitrarily set cutoff scores for entrance licensure exams into the field.
0: Um, I call it the over professionalization of teaching. That's, that's, that's uh, 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 I agree with you, Dr. Fenwick. Yeah, i uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead, go ahead.
3: No, I was really concerned about that because, um, you know, um, African American students, pre service teachers, and white pre service teachers perform comparably on the exit licensure exams, which means that when both groups or all groups, of these pre-service teachers get the treatment called teacher education, the pedagogy courses, the content courses, and then they take the licensure exam, they perform. Um, the entrance exams do nothing but we, poss- you know, capable students, I think, out of the profession. I remember my my youngest brother is a professor like me of ed policy at an institution at a university in Atlanta. And he, like me, taught before he went into higher ed, was a teacher of the year in Virginia for his district and won all these accolades in Georgia. He passed the uh, entrance exam into teacher ed by one point (laughs) and um, had a high GPA, but passed the entrance exam by one point and has just been a, was a phenomenal um, middle school English teacher. For 14 years, and a reading specialist. Um, so I think we need to really kind of look at how those scores have been set, and we've known, really since the 1970s, that the tests have been used to um, purposely constrict um, black teachers. Uh, Push them out of the profession,
0: or prospective teachers out of the uh, out of the profession. Right. Um, Last question. Oh, but before I ask it, um, interesting local historical fact: there's a famous picture of um, Justice Marshall. Uh, He was an attorney at the time, standing on the steps of the Rockville Courthouse in Montgomery County, um, Mm -hmm. uh, talking about. With other attorneys, a case that I think is largely considered the first case on the road to Brown, which was a suit uh, for the equal to pay of black and white teachers yes. in, in Montgomery County, um, and that was really that was really the beginning of it all. So we we've talked, uh, Dr. Fenwick, about equity. It's well documented, I think, that since the 1980s, school systems across the nation have largely ceased to actively take steps to continue to desegregate schools. On this show, we've talked about uh, this new era of segregation in school systems across the nation. What role do you think the public sector, particularly government, should assume to reinvest in equity in, in, and integration in our public schools?
3: Well, you know, in my book, I trace the exact moment when we stopped talking about integration as a proposition that not only involved the nation's students, but our, our teachers and principals. So we we bifurcated, we just dropped, I, I talk about that ex- the exact day, I traced it to the exact day that we be, we stopped talking about integration as a function of having Black teachers and principals in schools along with Black uh, uh, students. Um, I, th- I think the continued you know, focus on the value of diversity is, is helpful. Um, the continued um, bringing forth of data that shows the value of diversity. We are not going to be able to avoid this issue. You know, we're here, you know, uh, the majority or soon, very, very soon to be uh, the majority of our, uh, the American population is, um People of color. And so if we're to continue this experiment in any productive way, the groups that have been marginalized, held at the margins of the economic, political, political, social order, will have to be integrated. They can no longer be kind of captured in the education and economic friction equation, Mm -hmm. meaning their education... um, doesn't manifest in any substantive way in terms of um, engagement and independence in uh, the economy.
0: Thank you. Um, And I just, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I can remember the seventies and the eighties and my dad was involved in, in desegregation in the sixties. And I mean, at one, at one time, the federal government took a robust kind of position on desegregating schools that resulted in lawsuits and 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 bussing and lots of things that the american public didn't necessarily like but um but to a degree it worked uh and it just doesn't seem to me that the political will exists much anymore whether it's a boundary analysis um Uh, Or the creation of magnet programs, or there's very little that seems to be done now, and um, we've talked a lot about that on on this show.
3: I really think it's it's about you know when you listen to some of Johnson's speeches on these topics, it was about it was about a moral commitment, Mm -hmm. um, kind of a high minded commitment to what we wanted to see America be, or at least project to the remainder of the world. Uh, I think we're in another one of those places where we can reignite this moral commitment Um, because we're not going back. So we're going towards something. So what is this something that we're going to create? Um, And my hope is that um, that we, that we're able to ignite that, kind of common, uh, that co- uh, common commitment to a public good. That's my hope. <laughs> um, I know the last election um, showed that we still have a great deal of um, divisiveness in our country around um, issues that are related, quite frankly, to race and racism, mm-hmm. and this un, this this um, spoken and unspoken, more often now spoken notion that the country, its resources, even its history, its story, belong to certain people and not other people, and any tinkering with that story, any tinkering with that those resources. Um, suggests that ownership um, does not belong to all of us.
0: Yeah, the coalition well that cha- the, the coalition that changes it needs to be diverse for the first time yeah. ever. It has to be. <laughs> yeah,
3: and that's really yeah. I think that was the the beauty of Black Lives Matter. Right. When, when those images were all these young people of every hue, I mean, certainly led by you know, the, the concept, the leadership, the revolutionary thought, the courage was the black women who founded Black Lives Matter. And um, were unrelenting in what they had to say in the movement. And then all their ability to gather people of all hues and center them it's just brilliant. Uh, the movement and those women, their leadership strategy needs to be studied yeah. so deeply. It wasn't just, you know, I think about when I think about the women that uh, started Black Lives Matter, because that's the, that's the movement we're living in, right? That's the era. Um, they are comparable to uh, Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall. And James Neighbors. What was so amazing about then those black men? It wasn't just their moral commitment to desegregating society. It was the fact that they evolved new jurisprudential theory. They made up new theory to convince this court of nine white men who didn't want to, who didn't want to go this way, but had to be convinced because they came up with a new way of interpreting the law. And really, when you read more about Marshall and Naebert and and, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, they were intending Brown to be a stab in the eye with an ice pick of white supremacy. That's really what they were going after. Now, we've pastelled that history, make it all nice and clean and, and moral commitment, which was true, but there was a deep strategy here. And the women that started Black Lives Matter it wasn't just screaming Black Lives Matter. There was a deep strategy there that I think needs um, unpacking. Their theory of action, their, uh, their leadership, theory, um, which has produced a new moment in the world. Just, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. So I think, I think there really is an opportunity to activate or continue activating this moral commitment to the, to the right way.
0: All right. Um, Thank you, Doctor
3: Fenwick. Now is
0: the time that we've all been waiting for, which is the case. Seems- so you
3: call me Doctor Fenwick. We have to call you Principal Dodd. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello, Principal Dodd. Hello, Principal Dodd, <laughs> Dod and Principal. I, I wouldn't be. Could, I wouldn't mind being called Doctor Dodd. <laughs> uh, you okay. should, you okay.
2: should call him uh, it's, Bobby Dodd. Bobby Dodd.
1: Well, it's it's the Doctor is new enough for Robbie that he still thinks everybody should. Call that's him right. That. That's okay. Right. All right. <laughs> this, this is what always happens. All right,
0: Leslie. Um, this is the time of the show where Casey does his infamous quiz. Are you ready?
3: I am not ready. You're going to do great. Scared, but no, I'm going to no. go ahead. I got my pen in hand. All right. All right.
0: <laughs> you, you were a fourth grade teacher. You'll be fine. You're
2: going to do great. So Dr. Fenwick, Dr. Leslie Fenwick, thank you so much for joining us on Ed's Not Dead today. We are so lucky to have you on the show. To end our show, as Dr. Dodd said, we always include our infamous guest quiz to test your metal with the most relevant and useful trivia knowledge. Uh, so Dr. Fenwick, your guest quiz today is all about your surname. What else do you know about another famous Fenwick? The Fenwick Tower in Halifax, Canada, an interesting <laughs> and controversial building and apartments to say the least. Are you ready?
3: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing. What does Schultz say on Home okay. Zero? I don't think I know anything. <laughs> neither, neither
2: did I until about three hours ago. <laughs> okay. Number one. The Fenwick Tower in Halifax, Canada, has since seen a new use by a local university. Prior to its rehabilitated outside, a journalist described it as, quote, I examine how Fenwick Place, that was designed to express an idealistic future through its brutalist idiom, is now widely considered an architectural what? A, a marvel for all to see, B, a crime against humanity, or C, an accomplishment?
3: I would say a marvel. Oh, it's
2: actually a crime against, crime humanity. against humanity. I
3: started to say
2: that. <laughs> I just looked up a picture. It's pretty ugly. It's pretty bad. <laughs> Number this one you'll, this one gets it gets better. Number 2. Sticking with our Fenwick Tower, when it gets windy, the Fenwick Tower reportedly sways so much that which of the following happens? A, the water sloshes in the toilets. B, there's a pool on the top floor that can't be filled because the weight of the water would topple the building. Or uh, C, exerts so much pressure that tenants two floors below wouldn't be able to open the doors to their apartments. Or D, all of the above. All of the above. That's correct. All of the above.
3: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> modern
2: engineering that. marvel. <laughs> That's right. And number three, the last question, unless you want to have the bonus one as well. When the Fenwick <laughs> Towers were first built and used in the early 1970s, which of the following issues was per, or were pervasive? A, tenants who wanted to move between floors must pound on the doors and yell their floor number into the shaft. B, <laughs> angry neighbors would fling water balloons with a slingshot into tenant plate glass windows or C students did not treat the facilities with dignity.
3: I wish you were going to say D all of the above. (laughs) I'm going to go with, it's either a or the slinging of water balloons, but I'm going to go with
2: a. A is correct. (laughs) The elevators were run by an operator at all times. And apparently you had to shout into the shaft to get the elevator to come to your floor. And interestingly, the flinging water balloons happened to me as a college freshman where someone (laughs) in the the adjacent dorm used a slingshot to slam it through my uh, plate glass window while I was working an all-nighter and I got hit in the face with glass and water. So anyway. (gasps) Uh, So Leslie, you did great. Two out of three, you win. All right. Who do
3: I win? Do I get an Ed's Not Dead t-shirt?
0: We have stickers. Yeah. That's you, great. Yeah. A great, a great, a wonderful sticker. Um, <laughs> I like stickers. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Fenwick. I, Casey, I thought you were going to ask uh, a very famous fly rod. Uh, I have one yes. is, you yes. know, that, you know, that fe, fe, I do. the Fenwick, <laughs> the Fenwick company makes fly rods and, uh, I have a Fenwick fly rod. So, um, I thought, I thought you were going to go, go outdoor gear. But you did. I, I
2: I had a I had one question about. It's called the Fenwick number in hockey, but I uh, don't understand it. So okay, <laughs> I went with something else.
0: All right. Um, I think it's well known, fellas, that and it, we we don't have to be shy about it. That we a couple months ago um, had thrown our our huge hugely uh, Hardy endorsement. <laughs> yeah, Hardy endorsement uh, behind Dr. Fenwick for the Secretary of Education position. It's on the record yeah we were we were really excited, and um, we just want to congratulate you leslie on on being um, so highly considered for that position uh, it, when, when we read about you, that's you know we automatically a wanted you to get the position mm-hmm. and B, B wanted to get you on the show so <laughs> so Thank congratulations you. on that. but if you had
2: gotten it we wouldn't have we wouldn't have been able to have you. I know we
0: wouldn't have been on the book or she would have been too big time for us
3: well <laughs> well now if it, if it happens in, at some future point. With maybe even another administration, we have a connection.
1: We, we got right. the vetting. Yeah. The vetting
3: process was amazing, so uh, exhilarating and amazing. I bet.
0: All right. Bet. So before before we let you go, your book is coming out. You drop that this summer. Uh, give our audience the title again, and when you think it'll be it'll be released.
3: I think it'll be released either um, by the end of this year, twenty twenty one, or early. 2022 and it's Jim Crow's pink slip public policy and the decimation of black principal and teacher leadership in American education. I don't think the Jim Crow's pink slip part is going to change. The subtitle may shorten a bit. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, I know
0: I speak on behalf of Casey and Peter. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Ed's not dead. Dr. Leslie Fenwick is the Dean Emeritus of Howard university school of education uh, I'll call you Dr. Fenwick one last time. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for coming on Ed's Not Dead. We'll talk
3: to you soon. Thanks, Dr. Dad, Peter, Casey. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you all. Thank it's you. So
0: nice here. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm still your co-host. Well, that was an incredible interview. Thank you, Mr. Siddons, Mr. Crable. Uh, I don't know why I'm thanking you, Peter. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Siddons, that was a great get. Dr. Fenwick. Um, let's see if I can pronounce emeritus. Emeritus. There you go. Yes, Dean Emeritus of the School of Education. Um, if you want to, I, lo- I, I love the long. I love the long form NPR interview. I hope our audience likes that was it. Awesome. I,
1: yeah, yeah. Usually we, we we cut them off, edit them down. But Yeah, no, I, I I like I like longer interviews. Um, yeah, I was gonna say something, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> was she, very
3: she,
0: she was she was one of those um, speakers that I just you know she just sucked you in. She was yeah. so incredibly knowledgeable, and um, I am a bit surprised that she didn't get selected as the as the secretary of education. Yeah, I agree. I agree. She would have been a great yep. addition. Yeah,
2: I think yep. the
1: only she, thing we have to do is now we have to interview secretary cardona
2: that's right that's
0: yeah, right we do apples to apples you know we, we 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 do need to do that navigate um, the
1: bureaucracy of uh department of ed communications team i'll work on it there you go do it casey yeah. Get, yeah. i mean i email yeah.
2: betsy to every week nothing find
0: us find us jobs i haven't even i haven't even said uh god i just realized that we haven't said the phrase dear betsy in quite a while it's kind of (laughs) it's kind of dropped from our it's nice it's just gone like it was i thought i I would
2: be upset about the segment going
1: but i haven't given it a single second of thought not at all (laughs)
0: Has has there been any any desire for it out there in the ed's not dead
1: audience world? i I think everybody's so relieved yeah
0: they're ready to move on well, it was a killer. It was a killer segment. It got. It was starting to get tired towards the end. It was, yeah. Like, All like right, just, just in like her. her. One thing that never goes away is the end of the show. Ed's not dead. Casey <laughs> quiz. Much to your chagrin, baby. Uh, uh, this is the second quiz of the show. Doctor Fenwick availed herself admirably in your ridiculous Fenwick quiz. Do you want? Do you want to have
2: her bonus question? Real yeah, quick? sure.
0: Sure, add it on there.
2: All right. Uh, I'll just say it right here: the Fenwick number was named by Matt Fenwick, a blogger from Alberta, in 2007. The Fenwick number is a sports statistic model that helps predict scoring in which sport? Hockey. Very good. Hockey is the answer. I mean, clearly. Alberta. Okay, That's mind. right. I wanted, I, I'm trying to make my quiz questions a little better.
0: Is is, is it a, a wins-above-replacement uh, statistic?
2: No, Cra- it actually... Crable from, likes those. It actually... it's It's a way to predict scoring in some way using this thing called the... Oh, it's a... The Fenwick I number. Now, the Fenwick number uses a system <laughs> that I can't remember what this, it was.
0: This is the guy that claimed he could teach calculus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, boy. I given, could teach given it. My, given, my tertiary, <laughs>
2: given my current experience teaching uh, <laughs> yeah. online, I would oh. say I, I renege on that. Uh, oh, come safe. on.
1: You, could, not, do, you <laughs> could do it. I'm just <laughs> blessing your job. <child>. So, <laughs> you, you, here's a piece of uh, Betsy DeVos trivia for you. H- how much money did she make in her four years um in trump's cabinet
0: with blackwater with, zero with whatever with outside of her federal government salary yeah,
1: yeah. just her outside business
0: whatever oh, uh through through the her inheritance of amway i would assume and investments i'm going to say four years i'm going to say 200 million
1: 400 million 225 million wow yeah Robbie knows how the high flyers roll, yeah, man. She knows about <laughs> compounding interest. There you go. There you go. I'm sure she gave it two, to uh,
0: two, 20 million for four years of denigrating public institutions. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: The, the other, I just, I just looked her up and then just hit news. And the other top one was they, they made decisions on student loan forgiveness in 12 minutes. Ah,
2: there you go. Oh, That's nice. Not surprising nice. at all. <laughs> nice. Anyway, that makes me a little I, upset. So let's go on to nicer things. <laughs> All right, let's go with the quiz. All right, so Dr. Dodd, since you answered my bonus question correct the first time, you get to pick. Do you want Quiz A or Quiz B? Oh, that's informative. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so
0: let's go with Quiz A.
2: All right, all right. Number one, who this is a current events quiz? By the way, okay. All right, Krabel's good. Crabel's good at these multiple choice. Number one, who is confirmed as the new Secretary of the Interior, becoming the first Native American ever? No, it's for Robbie to become a presidential cabinet member a Marsha fudge b deb holland or c
0: jennifer granholm that would be b deb holland and i had i had no idea until crable said it
1: (laughs) see that's what you get and it was a shout out i thought you just shouted it out you didn't say uh... i did
0: i did know she was native american but i I i'm not really great with the names
2: well there you go you got it this it's it's the kid in class that yells out the right answer you know what i mean (laughs)
1: everybody does
2: Number two, airplanes were grounded and schools were closed as the largest dust storm in a decade swept across which country? A, Argentina, B, China, or C, Somalia? This is for Krable. No, this is for you, Dr.
1: Dodd. Oh, that was for oh. me. Sorry. Uh,
0: oh, so, you
1: were, so I get, he, I'm, getting, B,
0: I'm getting quiz you get A and he's quizzes. getting correct. quiz correct. B? Could correct. Could have been helpful correct.
1: to explain. I apologize. Yeah. I thought Teacher I, sit-ins.
0: Uh, and how, how are we comparing our scores? These are different quizzes. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Five points. Uh, China, Argentina. Or Somalia. Ooh. Uh, Argentina or Somalia. Patagonia is in Argentina.
1: Patagonia.
0: And, and it's summer. It was summer there. When is it? This is recently?
2: Yes. Just this past
0: week. But I, I picture Somalia as fairly arid. Um, I think I'm going to go Somalia.
2: It's actually China... Uh, the desert near adjacent Mongolia is slowly creeping in, uh, because of Gobi? development. Because of development, it might be the Gobi Desert. It's the, um,
0: step. <laughs> the
2: step. Number three, Russia recalled its ambassador to the U.S. after President Biden called Russian President Putin a what in a TV interview? A, a grifter. <laughs> B, a killer. Or C, a liar. Ooh, what did Sleepy
0: Joe say?
1: <laughs> Just I think taking Joe's uh. Joe's age here on this one.
0: I'm going. I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Um, I'm just going to go with liar.
2: Ah, incorrect. It's killer. Call him a killer. And I was going
0: to say killer, but I I don't know. I'm feeling a little.
2: Well, uh, it's okay. Let's see what Mr. Mr. Krabs does on Quiz B. Three for three. Okay. You ready? I,
0: ready? I basically was zero for three because I stole Crable's first answer. <laughs> now you three. got one for three. You got one for Still three. Got one. All
2: right, All right. All right. Dr. Crable. The Fagradals Mountain volcano, <laughs> Iceland, in blank 6, erupted years. after being dormant for six thousand years. Oh,
0: come on! I Chile, that one.
2: Argentina, or Iceland? Reykjavik. Oh, Rick, Reykjavik. Iceland is correct. Number two for that you. That drone
1: footage is uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, how
2: it's did cool. how did it not get taken out? Yeah, by I'm like I,
1: it went through lava. That's it's not a thing. Literally not possible. Lava. Lava. Hot magma. <laughs> I knew it hot magma.
2: Dr. Uh, Evil was coming. <laughs> Number two, for a fourth year in a row, what country was named the happiest country in the world in the UN World Happiness Report? A, Sweden, B, Finland, or C, France? Finland. Correct answer is Finland. Two for two.
1: That's right. And number That's right. three. I, lost. I know number three. About which that, item yeah.
2: was released from the International Space Station, becoming the heaviest single <laughs> piece of garbage ever jettisoned from the station? Is it a the HAL nine thousand computer? B a weather satellite?
0: <laughs> the HAL? 9, That's a lie.
2: B a weather satellite or C a battery pallet? A Ooh. battery pallet. That's a correct. A, a
0: battery pallet. pallet. He did not know that. That sounded good. So
2: I have two bonus <laughs> questions, just in case. Do you want to hear them? They're sports yeah. related for okay. you. Sports? Oh, go sports. There.
1: Okay. I, now, hold I'll get on. them both right. Don't worry. Now you're just, gonna, I'm gonna you're, put Robbie to shame today. You're gonna. Do ask, you want me to
2: ask them separately? No, Simulta- no we shout them out yeah. simultaneously. Okay. Yes. First question: This university was forced to pull out of its. end. let, let me finish the question forced to pull out of its NCAA Duke. tournament game with the Duke. University of Oregon after VCU. reporting multiple G- oh. positive cor- coronavirus tests. What did you say? VCU. VCU is correct. And right. the last one is something you probably don't know. Ryan Fitzpatrick is the new quarterback for the Washington football team, giving him a chance to start and throw a touchdown pass for Ninth a record. How to, many to, to, NFL teams? Eight, nine.
0: Nine, and he went to Harvard.
2: Nine is correct. Mister Crable runs the board. Booyah! Wow. Highest ever score
1: in the Wow, Wowie! Wow! Wow! He did wow. have
0: the highest Wonderlick score, didn't he?
1: Yeah. I don't know what that is.
0: He he his he he it's throws a standardized
1: assessments. standardized assessment, Casey. That's all you need to know.
0: He throws a lot of pickles for somebody who had a good Wonderlick score. <laughs> a lot of pickles. Doesn't he? He does. Oh. He does. He uh, he's he's he, he wouldn't be my pick, Mister Krabs. How do you feel about that?
1: Oh, it's. Uh, I mean, it's yeah, okay. It's, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. For a year, who cares? he he
0: does a he does a really fantastic post game interview. He
1: does, and he's got a he, great beard.
0: He does have a great beard. Um, so,
1: to be all right, for that.
0: Mr. Siddons, great quiz, Mr. Thank Craves. You. Thank great, you. Great, Mr. Graves was Mr. Craves was on his A game tonight. Yeah, yeah. doesn't usually happen. Man, oh man, that was that was, Proud in, of you guys. that was that was impressive. Those were those were good. Can we do like? Can we do an all sports quiz at one point in time so I can like
2: like 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 uh, mainstream sports or like <laughs> like uh, no not gra- like sh- rifling and and, and uh... no
0: no shuttlecock no we sh- want we we want we want mainstream sports so me and me and Mister Craves can go head to head so no curling questions no curling questions
2: okay, got it okay I I will work on it with okay. my my massive sports quiz acumen you have a lot to draw back on. I have a huge, huge file folder back there.
0: All right, fellas, when this when this episode comes out, we will be in spring break. I know, yeah. I know, both of you are pretty stoked to have <laughs> a well deserved week off. So excited. Uh, before we before we close the show, any any big plans other than the seven yards of mulch that you have to spread?
2: <laughs> so excited. Uh, no news. Just excited.
0: Okay, uh, just for our audience that can't see it. When when did he get this feature on
1: Zoom? <laughs> I when don't know, when we were waiting for you, uh, when you came a half hour later. Okay, right now show,
0: he has uh, an uh, eye patch and a pirate's hat superimposed over his bald head. <laughs> he, now he just, just discovered <laughs> it. Okay, all right, now I can't focus. Uh, Mr. Craigs, let's go to you, because he's... he's Yeah, uh,
1: weather, weather pending. Uh, I might take the boys backpacking for the first time. bring those bring those frog nets oh yeah so we went again did you go we went twice yeah the first time um we went to one pond and it was pretty good caught a bunch of tadpoles only caught one frog and then on the way out we passed this other little pond that was like just insane with frogs so we came back the next weekend but you know if you don't come in the right weekend they're not there
0: all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna take you and the kids to one of my secret ponds. Let's do it in April or May.
1: Yeah. The other thing I need is when you steal their eggs, when you steal all the frog babies, how to bring them home and hatch them? Because I've, I've I, stolen the eggs, but have not actually oh had. Boy, I don't think they're gonna hatch.
0: Well, no, they take a while to hatch. All you need is an aquarium with 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 water and and stick them outside on your back porch. Oh, don't really? not not in direct sunlight.
1: Okay. Well,
0: maybe. And, that they, they should be fine. It takes a while for they don't hatch overnight. I thought
1: it was gonna happen like two days.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he thinks it's the sped up camera. You, you, should, you, know, you should you
0: should tell August to go out there and sit on them and they'll hatch. <laughs> you would do it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Just watch really carefully.
0: Uh, all right, Mr. Mr. Siddons, you don't have anything else going on besides mulch spreading over my milk? folks
2: are coming down and okay, they're, nice. gonna, they're gonna see Frida for the first time and oh since August.
0: Wow. wow. Yeah. Well that'll that'll be a good time.
2: Yeah, they're excited. In person, I should say.
0: I'm gonna do a little fishing in nice. uh, the, the middle of middle of next week. I'm excited. What are you uh, fishing for? I'm fishing for some trout, Mr. Siddons. In this uh, weather? Is it yeah, a little warm for it? No, this is trout season. March, okay. March, April, and May. That's okay. Like the, the three three best months. By June it gets a little warm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna be out in the mountains, so I'm I'm excited about that. I'm going with my buddy Jerry. Nice. And I'm going to outfish him and it's going to be fun. Nice. <laughs> All right. As always, um, Ed's not dead is brought to you by Ed's not dead media a podcast, media company that curates high quality audio stories across a variety of genres. Before we get off Mr. Sid's pandemic pass update. One more interview, one more show.
2: It's coming out next Thursday. Big guest tune in. I thought it was going to be today. It's not. It's next Thursday. Last next, one.
0: Next Thursday. Big Thursday, Thursday Thursday. the what? You got a date for us? Thursday, whatever next Thursday is. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: All right. I, I just so happen to have my outlook. Uh, so let's say Thursday the April 1st. 1st. Yeah. Oh, not right. April Fool's Day. You're not. You're not Well, let me this. tell you. Let
2: me to tell you who the guest is.
0: Yeah, but last last episode, it was going to be a surprise, I thought.
2: Well, do you want to know or do you want me to know? I, t- I can say it now. Yeah, say it. Well, it's going to be Zaretta Hammond.
0: Oh, you're big lying. Get.
2: Big get, big get.
0: On pandemic past, not and on Ed's boom, not yeah. dead. And
2: there's a second kind of special guest included in this. And I shouldn't say kind of. There's a special guest that will be joining me as well.
1: What? I don't. I didn't know about this.
2: Yeah.
0: Who, uh, a, yeah. A, co,
1: a co-interviewer?
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Who is it? Oh, I can't tell you that. You have to Come listen on. in.
2: You have to listen in. We're recording right. on Monday morning. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's exciting. So, and I'm catching her. So I had I, I caught her, Zaretta, before she's going in her. She's calls it her writing cave because she's going in a writing cave for the next two months. To uh, she's working on two different books, so that's a big big deal. And uh, I caught her right before she went in and closed the door to that writing cave. So she's been very gracious, and uh, we're excited.
0: Okay, good job. So folks, don't miss Pandemic Pass out April first with. Zaretta Hammond and as of now a none unknown co interviewer uh, That's going to going to be a going to be a big get I can just tell. Uh, exciting. All right, uh, once again thank you to Dr. Leslie Fenwick, Dean Emeritus of Howard University School of Education. We really appreciated her, having her on the show. We hope you enjoyed the interview as much as she as we did. Uh, make sure you check out our website edsnotdead.com, and also twitter ed's not dead pc all right boys it's good to see you have a wonderful spring break thanks as always folks for tuning in to ed's not dead
2: make sure you subscribe on
0: itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and we will talk to you soon see you peter see you casey bye